Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. My name is Hazel. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. <clears throat> Let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. My name is Parker. I'm one of the pastors here. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 11. We've got a a fun text today. (laughs) A bunch of woes to to cities. Um, I was listening to this sermon a couple weeks ago, and it was talking about why we why we open our hands in prayer, why we open our hands when we sing, and sometimes we raise our hands when we sing, and and, um, he brought out a few points that I thought were really helpful. One, it's a the reason why we do this is because, one, it's just commanded in scriptures, and so we're, we're being obedient. But also, the reason why we open our hands in prayer, and we open our hands in singing, and we raise our hands, is not because we feel it, it's because we don't feel it. And there's something that happens physiologically to you, spiritually to you, mentally to you, physically to you, when you just, when you just open up. And um, what a posture of just neediness, right? That we can actually train our hearts to say, Lord, I want, I want to want you. I don't feel it now. I don't feel sometimes like singing these words, but I'm going to because it will actually open myself up to the Holy Spirit's work in my life. So that being said, I would, I would just, if you're comfortable and able, I would just love for us to just open our hands, maybe just right on your lap, right in front of you as we pray and as we give over this time to the Lord. Good and gracious God, our Father, I do ask that as our hands are open right now, you would empty them of everything we cling so tightly to. All the false gods of control, of pride, of selfishness, and you would just fill them with yourself. God, I pray right now that you would fill our hands with our daily bread. You would fill our hands with a desire to long for you. You would fill our hands with your presence, with your peace, 
You, are, you would fill our hands with your joy. And ultimately, God, you would fill our hands with yourself so that we may just offer, offer our lives to you and our lives to others. Father, we do ask that in this time this morning, you would, you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear so that we may see you and we may change and we may find life in your name. We pray all of these things in your son's name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start with a story. I heard this story from this pastor. This pastor's name is Pete Portal, and he lives in, uh, in Manenberg, South Africa. And he tells a story about this Muslim man uh, named Munir. And Munir was on, on heroin. He was in and out of prison, and he, had, he was a part of a prison gang, so he had all these prison tattoos all over his body as well. And he gets out of prison, and he strikes up this conversation with Pete, and Pete's like, hey, why don't you, you can, he was looking for a place to stay, he was homeless. Pete was like, hey, just come into my house, we have an extra guest bed. Come into my house, but one thing is that every morning we read scripture together. So if you're willing to do that, then you can stay, you can come and go, I can help you find a job, et cetera, et cetera. And Muneer was like, okay, I can, I can do that. So one, one morning, they were reading scripture together, and they came across the parable of, of the soil, where there's the sower, and he has the seed, and the sower being Jesus, and the seed being the gospel, and he goes out, and there's four different types of soil. There's the, there's the path, there's the hard soil, there's the soil with weeds, and then there's the thin soil where the sun kills it, and then there's the good soil. And the whole point of the parable is kind of Jesus asking his disciples, what soil are you? What type of a soil are you? And so Pete asked Muneer, he said, Muneer, what, what type of soil do you think you are? And Muneer was like, oh, I'm definitely not the good soil. Because he, he didn't need to be told that he was a sinner, that he was far from God. He knew that. He knew that already. And Pete said, well, what would prevent you from, from becoming the, the good soil? And Muneer was like, well, I made two lifelong commitments. I made one, a lifelong commitment to Islam, and I can't break that. And two, I, I made a lifelong commitment to this prison gang that I'm in, and it's a, it's a blood covenant. Like, when you're in it, you are, you're in it. You can't get out. And, and Pete he didn't try to correct him. He didn't try to change his mind. He just said, hey, do you think we could pray to Jesus that those two things wouldn't be obstacles to you? And Muneer was like, okay, yeah, sure. So they pray. Pete prays with this guy, Muneer, and, and he just prays, Lord Jesus, I pray that the lifelong commitment to Islam would not be an obstacle to Muneer coming to you, and I pray that um, the lifelong commitment to this prison gang would not be an obstacle to Muneer coming to you. So they go on their way. That afternoon or that evening, they come back home. That day, and Pete goes, so Muneer, how was your day? Just catching up, all this stuff. And Muneer goes, the craziest thing happened to me today. I was walking, and I see these four guys with prison gang tattoos all over the body. And they come up to me, and each of them has a Bible in their hand. And they told me that they used to formerly be Muslim, and they used to formerly be in a prison gang with a lifelong commitment, and that when they saw me, the Lord told them, go talk to him and tell him, Muneer, the Lord is opening up a door in your life, and all you have to do is walk through it. So Muneer tells Pete this story, and Pete's jaw just drops. Like, oh, and he goes, Muneer, do you think that Jesus maybe might have answered our, our prayer today, this morning? And Muneer was like, oh, oh yeah, I, I do think, yeah, maybe that, that is, that's kind of cool. 14 years later, and to this day, Muneer is not following Jesus. He's come up with every excuse why not to follow Jesus. He has avoided and closed his eyes on multiple, multiple answers to prayer 
experiences of the living God. And before we cast blame on Manir, we need to understand that this story, while not, maybe not as extreme, happens all of the time. It happens all the time. In our lives, it happens all the time in the scripture's lives where there is clear, clear God moments, answers to prayers, and people all over the scriptures, people all in our lives, and we ourselves just say, huh, that's kind of strange. And so today, we're gonna be talking about one of Jesus' harder words that he says, and I'm gonna be honest, these passages of scripture I don't enjoy. Um, I mentioned last week, or not last week, two weeks ago, that in, in this section of Matthew, the responses to Jesus are, the volume's turned up. And part of the reason that we see various responses to Jesus, we see people start getting angry at Jesus, we see people start plotting against Jesus to kill him. One of the reasons for that is because he starts saying stuff like this. Like next week, I'm jealous I'm not preaching next week. Next week is the beautiful passage that make it to preach of like, come to me all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me for I'm gentle and lowly of spirit. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's the Jesus that I wanna preach on. But today we get the Jesus a few verses before and he says stuff like, if, if, if miracles were performed in Sodom that were performed in you, they would have repented in, in, in sackcloth and ashes long ago. And it's actually gonna be better for them in the day of judgment than it is for you. So these words are harsh. These words are, uh, there, there's anger in Jesus' voice. We're gonna see that in a second. Uh, uh, and one of the things that is difficult about this passage is that it can and often is used out of context. People just take Jesus' words and they just make them say whatever they want to say. So that being said, I, I have three introductory remarks and they're all short, so don't worry. It's not one of those sermons where the intro is like 30 minutes and then the actual sermon's like 10 minutes. I don't think, uh, anyway. Uh, three introductory remarks for this passage um, uh, before, before we dive in. The first is that this text is intended to be a mirror for us to look at ourselves. I personally have found, and maybe you guys can relate to this, that sometimes when there is, there is an intense, te- intense teaching of Jesus, I like to, if it's a mirror, I like to take the mirror and like angle it and look at other people and be like, oh, this message would be really good for them. Oh, I know who should hear this. And you take what the Lord has invited us into and we say, oh, well, they're, they need this more than I need this. Or we take the mirror and we flip it out and as soon as the Holy Spirit comes with this conviction, we deflect and we say, actually go that way instead. And I just wanna invite us to say, to, to put down, to open our hands, to put down any um, desire to deflect or defer the work of the Holy Spirit and use this passage as a mirror to examine our hearts, our minds, and say, Lord, Lord, I am humbly here to listen to what you have to say. That's the first introductory remark. Second introductory remark is this, there is a trend, uh, especially in more conservative Protestant churches like our own, to really enjoy the hard teachings of Jesus in an unhealthy way. Uh, there are, there's a tendency for people to really enjoy like this tough as nails Jesus who has teeth and grit and just says it like it is. People who don't think that a sermon is good if there isn't any conviction. 
and people who say, well, that's just the truth, and the truth is what it is, and it's hard to swallow, so get over it. And I would just, again, offer another invitation to us this morning. Before we somehow get weirdly excited about this, if that, if that is you, we need to remember that Jesus' harshest words, his harshest words, are towards the people who think they know God and don't. His, he never reserves harsh words for those who know they don't know God, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, those who know they are in need. And so these words are directed at people who are like, I know who God is. Okay, I know who God is. And so before we get like, yeah, we need a, we need a good, tough message, let's just remember that the, oftentimes the people with that approach are often the very people that Jesus addresses with his harshest words. The second introductory. You guys ready for this morning? It's really quiet here. Sorry. The third introductory remark is this: um, We are promised, and this is the good news. This is where we're going to end it too, like later, not right now. Uh, we are promised in Scripture that Jesus will always answer at least one prayer. We were promised a few, but He will always answer at least one prayer, and it is this: I'm sorry. I repent, forgive me. Jesus will always answer that prayer, period. If you see the love of Jesus in your life and you see the depravity of your own heart and you say, Lord, I need you, he is quick to answer that. When you look at the Lord in your life and you don't change, then you actually create a hell on earth and a chaos in your own life and the lives of others. But when you look at the work of the Lord, when we look at the work of the Lord in our lives and others' lives, and we can say, you are Lord, then Jesus has everything for you. It's an eternal quality of life that starts right now. It's a future glory in the present reality. It's life to the full. It's, as we're gonna see next week, the easy yoke, the light burden, and rest for your souls. I wanna tell you this. Jesus is waiting and eager to just drown you in his mercy and his grace and his goodness. So today is gonna talk a lot about repentance and a lot about hardness of heart. And if you leave this sermon thinking, well, I'm just miserable and I'm terrible and Jesus just yelled at me, then I have failed because that is not at all what this passage is about. This passage is about us having the opportunity to see the greatness of God in our lives and to respond accordingly with life. Not with shame, with life, with love, with the power of God for salvation to those who believe. So, those are my three introductory remarks. That was short. We're gonna get into this text, Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Two weeks ago, we started movement three, and um, this is when we talked about doubts and expectations. Doubts and expectations. John the Baptist, he heard about what Jesus was doing and he doubted. He said, are you sure you're the right guy? Uh, I had these expectations about you and it doesn't seem like you're meeting them. And that's where he left off. With Jesus, he sent John the Baptist's disciples back and he talks to these crowds and he's saying, like, what, are you, what are you guys expecting of the Messiah? Because it's not like anything that you, you're, you're expecting. And then immediately after that, he goes right into this section. So look with me at chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus says this, <clears throat> Sorry, Matthew says this about Jesus. Then he, he being Jesus, proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Then he, Jesus, proceeded to denounce these towns. What does it mean to denounce? I don't remember the last time I heard denounce in like a normal sentence. 
Um, and so what does it mean to denounce? Denounce is actually the word for insult. It's the same Greek word as the word insult, and it's only used two other times in Matthew, and this is really interesting. It's used at the end of the Beatitudes when it says, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you, insult you, denounce you, speak ill of you. And it's used at the end of Matthew when it says that all the people at the foot of the cross were mocking Jesus, and the sinners on, the, the robbers on the right and the left also began to insult Jesus. Jesus. They began to denounce Jesus. So in both of those contexts, that word insult is a really bad thing. Like you don't want to have that happen to you because it's, it's insulting. It's literally, it's, it's people in their anger and their misconceptions of who Jesus is, like saying bad things about that. And now it says here that Jesus is actually denouncing or actually insulting. There is emotion in this. There is there is a deep hurt and a deep anger in this. But who is he doing this to? He's doing this to the towns. He proceeded to denounce the towns. What towns? Uh, Jesus, up to this point, most of his ministry has been in Galilee. So it's like north of Jerusalem. It's kind of, you know, smaller rural towns and villages, and that's where he grew up as well. So he's, he, he's denouncing these towns in Galilee, and we're gonna see three specific ones here in a second. But why was he denouncing these towns? He was denouncing them where most of his miracles, oh, sorry, where most of his miracles were done. That word miracles, uh, some, actually, I think the ESV has powerful works or mighty deeds or something. This word miracles is not, is unfortunately not the technical word for miracles. There's another word for, for miracles, but this is the word dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite, so like power, like something like power, like dynamic. And what this is saying is Jesus, it's not just miracles, like healing uh, the blind or healing the leper. It's, it's Jesus' mighty deeds. So it, this is everything from his words Think the Sermon on the Mount. Think him teaching and preaching in the synagogues. This is his actual miracles. This is him uh, eating dinner with the tax collectors and, and the sinners and all of these, these no-name people. All of these things is what Jesus is doing in these, these towns in Galilee. And now he's insulting these towns where all of his mighty deeds were done. All of his dynamics were done. All of his power was done because they did not repent. In other words, they saw what Jesus was doing. These guys had a front row seat to Jesus. Again, not just his miracles, but his teachings. Remember after the Sermon on the Mount, they were shocked because why? He taught not like one of their scribes, but he taught as somebody who had authority. He would go into their synagogues, and in Luke, we know that he opened the scroll of Isaiah, he, he read it, and he said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, and he dropped the scroll and he sat down. Like, what Jesus is doing in these towns is, not, is, is unlike anything anybody has ever seen. So these villages and these towns, they see the deeds of Jesus. They see prayers answered. They see mighty acts of God in their midst. And they are unchanged. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse is, I, I really love it. He says this, next, Jesus unleashed on the cities. You feel that tension, that anger there, where he had worked the hardest, but whose people had responded the least He'd worked the hardest, but whose people had responded at least, shrugging their shoulders and going their way. Now, before we keep going on, we need to address this word repent, because unfortunately, repentance, and that word repent, I think is only used in religious contexts, which can uh, actually lead us to assume that it's only a religious thing, or like it's only like a Christian thing, but it's not. We actually are repenting all the time. We just don't use the word. Um, repentance, here's a few examples of what I mean. Repentance is uh, eating fast food every single day, three meals a day, 
let's say McDonald's, you're eating McDonald's every single meal, every single day, and then you realize that it's actually terrible for you, and it, you feel gross, and, you know, it's not good. You're seeing the effect it has on your body, and then you actively change your diet to a healthier diet and healthier eating habits. What's that? That's repentance. You see something, and then you change. <coughs> repentance is uh, making, maybe uh, last week when the snowstorm had, making plans to drive to work on the biggest snowy day, and all the roads are covered in ice. You get outside, you're in your car, and you're like, actually, based on what I see, I'm going to stay at home so that I don't risk my life and everybody else's life. You see something, and you change because of it. Repentance is looking at your spending habits, realizing that you don't have as much in coming in as you do going out, so you change. Repentance is rooting for some subpar NFL team, like, I don't know, the Chiefs or the Packers or something. <laughs> and, then, <whoa. laughs> and then realizing that there is a far superior NFL team. Let's just say the, the Detroit Lions or something like that. And choosing, you see that they're superior, and you choose and you change, and you start cheering for them. <clears throat> Hypothetically, of course. Repentance is simply seeing and changing. It's not a Christian thing. It's not a religious thing. It's actually an everyday thing. We do this all the time. We just don't call it repentance all the time. But it's seeing and it's changing. And that's actually the definition, I, I think, is best of repentance. It's seeing and then changing. I am operating in a certain way. I realize that it's not good for me and it's not good for others, and so I change. And what's interesting is that the change doesn't have to be drastic. More often than not, changes, it's the little changes over a long period of time that have the biggest results. In fact, leadership gurus and studies from psychologists are all showing and agreeing that the biggest changes in people's lives are not done in one moment. They're done in incremental steps, slowly, daily, building a habit, having that habit become a pattern, having that pattern change your other habits, and then all of a sudden, you look back on a lifetime of five years of, you know, going from eating McDonald's every single meal, every single day, to now you're eating really healthy, and it's just like, you don't just decide that in one day, it's a lifetime of change, seeing and changing, seeing and changing. That is repentance, and that's actually exactly what it looks like to follow Jesus, seeing and changing, and this is why we say repentance isn't just a one-time thing, because you're not gonna go from a person who is constantly angry, bitter, and having all sorts of broken relationships to all of a sudden, for the most part, to all of a sudden you're just filled with the fruit of the Spirit and, it, and God just like zaps his presence in you. No, it's a lifetime. It's making every effort to supply our faith with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. It's putting on the new self and taking off the old self daily. It's seeing, hey, actually the way I respond to this person is just creating chaos, both in my mind and my heart and that person's heart, and so I, I don't wanna respond like that anymore. Hey, actually, the person who is insulting me, typically, I, uh, tit for tat, you know, he insults me, I insult him back, but that doesn't, you can't defeat evil with evil. So you know what, I don't wanna respond like that anymore. I actually wanna overcome evil with good. So when that happens to me, I'm not gonna respond in, in anger and in retaliation, I'm actually just gonna respond in love seeing and changing. So these towns that Jesus is in, they saw Jesus. Oh, they saw Jesus. I mean, literally saw him too. And they did not change. And so what does Jesus say to them? Verse 21, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were, if the uh, mighty acts, the powerful dynamics 
were done in you that had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. What on earth is a woe? And why does Jesus say, woe to you? Jesus is adopting the language of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, and a woe is a warning. It's a threat. It is words addressed to those who have aligned themselves against God. It's, a, it's actually putting blame on something or someone. So it's not just like, hey, look out. It's actually like, no, 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 you are in the wrong here. You have aligned yourself against God. And this language in the Old Testament, stay with me, this language in the Old Testament is used against pagan nations. It's used against Babylon, Assyria, all of the Tyre and Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's used against pagan nations, i.e. nations that are not God's people. But now, who is Jesus addressing? He's addressing Jewish towns, Israelite towns, the people of God. Israel is the people of God. So, so what Jesus is doing is he's taking what's formally used to be like, if you would have said, you know, woe to you, Rome, or woe to you, Babylon, or woe to you, whatever, everybody would have been like, yeah, that's right. But he goes, no, 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 woe to you, children of, like the, the children of God, because I'm here in your midst, and you did not repent. I'm doing all of these things. You're hearing my words, you're hearing my teachings, you're seeing answers to prayers, and you are not changing. In Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 26, 27, 28 are four chapters where Tyre and Sidon are condemned. Tyre and Sidon are on like the coast and they're really powerful, but basically they're condemned for a lot of reasons. There are oracles and there's woes and there's pronouncements against Tyre and Sidon because they are arrogant. They are arrogant because they have a lot of wealth and they're really skilled at what they do. They were big export cities. They have a lot of wealth and they are really skilled at what they do. But whatever political power was on top in their day, they would just be like, okay, yeah, we're on your side now. Okay, yeah, we're on your side now. Okay, yeah, we'll stab them in the back and we're on your side now. And Jesus is saying, or sorry, Isaiah 23 and then Ezekiel 26, 27, 28, they're saying you're arrogant because of the wealth. You, th you think you can do no wrong. It says that they prostitute themselves to the kingdoms of the world throughout their earth. It does say that their, their skill actually increased their wealth, but their heart has become proud of your wealth. So those are the woes to Tyre and Sidon. Now Jesus is saying, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, where Philip, Andrew, and Peter were from, by the way, that were Jewish cities, because if if Tyre and Sidon, you know Tyre and Sidon, those bad cities that are prophesied against in Isaiah and Ezekiel, if they saw what you saw, they would have started mourning immediately. They would have ripped their clothes. They would have sat in the dust. They would have said, woe is me, I'm a, I, we are people of unclean lips. But, verse 22, I tell you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, it'll actually be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. He keeps going. And he turns up the volume. And you, Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' own city. He was born in Nazareth, but he lived in Capernaum for the majority of his adult life before his ministry. We know this from Matthew 9, we know this from Matthew 4, and we know this from the other gospels. So he lived there for a while, for a long time. A few of the other disciples were from there. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. 
For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. This is a quote from Isaiah 14, where Isaiah is talking about another pagan nation, Babylon. And he says, Babylon, you say to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I'm, I'm on top. I've made it. We're here. But rather what's going to happen is you're actually going to go down to the grave. You're going to die. Hades here is, is just a, a word for the grave, for death, for the end. And what was used against Babylon is now being used against Jesus's, one of Jesus' home villages. Are you going to be exalted to the heaven? No, you're, you're going down to the grave. Because why? If the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, let's talk about Sodom for a minute. Sodom is the archetype of evil in the scriptures. So much so that there, were, there was a name for people who, who acted with evil, and it was like sodomites. Like, oh, they're just a bunch of sodomites. Now, we know that Ezekiel 16 tells us that the reason they were so evil is because of its pride, its excess of food, its comfortable security, and its neglect of the poor. Those are the reasons that Ezekiel gives us for why Sodom was so evil. And it became the archetype for wickedness, injustice, and the opposite of the heart of God, so much so that it was destroyed. By the way, Tyre and Sidon were destroyed, but they still remained cities, and actually cities still today. Sodom was destroyed so much that it was literally wiped off the face of the earth. It's at the bottom of the Dead Sea. It's where the, currently where the Dead Sea would have been. So they were so wicked that God wiped it from the face of the earth because of their arrogant hearts, because their comfort from food and money, because their comfortable security and because of their neglect of the poor. And now Jesus is saying, now Jesus is saying, you, Israelite village that I lived in for a long time are worse than Sodom. Because if, if Sodom would have seen what I've been doing here, they would have repented long ago. And I tell you, it'll actually be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Do you feel, if you were in Chorazin, Bethsaida, or Capernaum, and you knew the scriptures of Isaiah and Ezekiel and all of the, the woes to, to Tyre and Sidon and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that was just the way that you talked, and you actually talked about bad people like they were Sodomites, and you talked about bad people like they were Tyre and Sidon, and now Jesus flips the scripts, and he takes the mirror, and he says, look at yourself, because you have something here that if they would have had it, they would have seen and they would have changed. And because you are not, because you don't, you actually would have rather been a sodomite. It would have been better for you if you were from Tyre and Sidon. To whom much is given, much is required. The people who are given the very words and oracles and presence of God are required the most. And now is the opportunity for us because I, I know that the enemy is saying this because he said this to me for a while. Well, that was, that, was, that was then. They literally had Jesus. Like if I literally had Jesus, come on, I would I'd probably repent. The enemy is saying, well, things are different now. Well, well, if you had an explicit prayer answered, if you saw somebody who was dead raised to life, if you saw a leper be cleansed, if you saw all these things, you, you would repent. But things are different now. And that's a lie. 
John 16 and the, and the whole New Testament shows us. And John, in John, Jesus himself says, it's actually better that I leave, that Jesus bodily leaves and ascends to heaven. It's better that I leave because then I'm gonna send what? The Holy Spirit. And he's going to do things even more powerful. That's what John says. So before we say, well, that was Jesus, and if I saw Jesus, then I would have repented too. We can't, that's, no, that's not an excuse. Because Jesus himself says, the Holy Spirit with you is better than me in bodily form with you. And so b- before, we, 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 before we cast stones at these Israelite towns and these Galilean villages, I want us to ask ourselves, in what ways do I do the same thing? I started with the story of Manir and that pastor named Pete. And the first time I heard the story, I'm gonna be honest, I thought to myself, wow, if God was that clear in answering a prayer, if I literally said, I have a lifelong commitment to Islam and a lifelong commitment to this prison gang, and that day, four men walked up to me and said, hey, I used to have that too, but God told me to tell you that there's a door opening for you and you just need to walk through it. If something that clear were to happen to me, I would have repented. I said that after I heard the story. And then the next thought I had was, I don't know if I would. Because how many times have I seen God in my life and I've just been like, oh, that was strange. How many times have I been too busy to see God answer a prayer request that's right in front of me? How much content do I have stuffed into my brain and yet sometimes my heart is far from God? How many times have I read the words of Jesus, this exact passage, the words of Jesus, and I'm like, I'm glad I'm not from Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Do, you under, do I understand that when I say that, I am doing exactly who Jesus is talking to here? What are the answers to prayers? What are the experiences of God we have in our own lives? What's the evidence of God that we have that we push aside? Because each one of us has a version of Manir's story and of these villages' story. It might not be as extreme, as, as, as their stories, but we have a version of this where we see God, I, I, where we have an opportunity to see God or we do see God and we do not change because of it because we can all resonate with the fact that we probably like putting God at arm's length to carry on with life on our own terms more so than we don't. What I need, what we need as the born again people of God is not more knowledge we live in the information age. We can just know everything about everything. I say that sarcastically, we can't really. But uh, what, we, what I need is not more knowledge. What I need is eyes to see and ears to hear. Because these villages, they had Jesus right there, but they did not have eyes to see him. And they did not have ears to hear him. There's this quote I love, and it says this, earth is crammed with heaven. Every common bush is a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. Guys, if we believe that God is alive, that God is moving, that God speaks to us, that it genuinely, if we take Jesus seriously and say it actually genuinely is better that the Spirit is with us than Jesus being with us in the flesh, if we believe that, then we cannot miss the fact that earth is crammed with heaven. God is constantly calling out to you. 
As you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. As we slow down our lives, as we enter into prayer, as we point out what we see God doing in other people, as we hear people point out what they see God doing in us, our eyes slowly start to open. We can say, Jesus, you've been here all along. You're, you're here. I'm, I'm following you. I'm gonna change everything. I'm gonna rearrange the furniture of my heart and of my mind so that I can see you more clearly. What we need is not more knowledge or more content. What we need is eyes to see, ears to hear, and a soft heart to respond to the good news. So I have these two questions that I wanna ask us. Where have you seen the power of God and where do you need to change? Where have you seen the mighty acts of God in your life and where do you need to change? And for that first question, it assumes that you are seeing the, the mighty deeds of God and the power of God. And if not, remember at the beginning, the prayer that Jesus will always answer is, Lord, I repent. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Give me eyes to see. Give me eyes to see and then give me a, a pattern of my life so that I can change. This text is a mirror in that what the author of Matthew wants us to see is ways in which we sometimes resemble Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And Luke ends, and in Luke's account, he actually ends this section with that phrase, to whom much is given, much is required. Where have you seen the power of God? Where do you need to change? Now this is all, all well and good to do this once, you know, every now and again and every time there's an intense sermon or, you know, when you feel like it, but we often don't feel like repenting and we don't feel like seeing and changing. So there is this prayer that, that has been offered for thousands of years. I mean, Christians have been doing it for thousands of years and, and I just want to introduce it to you guys. It's not like a, you have to do this or whatever, but the question I want to ask is how do, I, how do I create a rhythm in my life and a posture of my heart that I'm always wanting to see and change. Always. I all, I, Lord, I want more of you. I just want to see you more. And I'm always wanting to change. Rather than just like once every couple months or, or, or whatever. Like how do we create a posture of our heart and of our lives where we can daily reflect and we can have in the rhythms of our heart, Lord, I see you working here and I'm going to respond. I see you working here and I'm going to respond. There's this prayer called the Prayer of Examine that Christians have been doing for thousands, uh, sorry, hundreds of years, I should say, for hundreds of years, and basically I have it on here. At the end of every day, I mean, I've, I've done this for a while, and it can take two minutes, it can take five minutes, and it's just a simple four-part prayer. Replay, rejoice, repent, reboot. How, if, if we want to be people who have a posture of constantly seeing God and responding and changing, one way, not the way, one way to do that is just this prayer every single night. Before, we, I, we do this night, night before we go to bed. And you can do it with your spouse, you can do it by yourself. Replay. What was my day like today? Had this meeting. Had this family event. Traveled here. Rejoice. Lord, thank you. Thank you for that moment I had with my wife and my daughter. Thank you for that time I had reflecting on this. Thank you for the the bonus I got. Thank you for, rejoice, re repent. Lord, I responded poorly there. 
that conversation I had, I, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Lord, I think you were prompting me to text this person or to talk to this person or say something and I ignored it. I don't want, I don't want that to be true of me. And then reboot. Lord, you say your mercies are new every morning. Tomorrow morning, I want your new mercies. I want to see you. This prayer, you do this a few times, it'll be beneficial. You do this over a lifetime, it will be transformational. If, do we want to become people who are constantly seeing God, who are like that pastor, Pete Portal, who just said, yeah, come into my house. We're gonna read scripture every day. Can I pray for you for that? Oh, do you think that Jesus answered that prayer? Just the, the, the natural overflow of Jesus in his life. I want that for me. I want that for us. So this is just an opportunity for us to say, hey, maybe for a while we'll, we'll do this. Just a two-minute prayer, a five-minute prayer, a 10-minute prayer, it doesn't have to take long. But how can we become people who constantly are seeing and constantly changing and responding to the goodness of God in our lives? Let's pray. Father, you are good, and you are here with us right now. And I, I, God, I'm so grateful that you are not a distant God who doesn't hear our prayers, but you hear our prayers. And whenever we say, Lord, have mercy, you are eager to show us your mercy. God, make us people who see and who change, who are constantly repenting, who are falling more in love with you every single day, who are seeing your good, miraculous deeds, who, are seeing, who sees your power in everything, even if it's just a small little conversation, God, I want to be people, we want to be people who are pure in heart because then we will see you. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would uh, instill in our hearts a vision to see that earth is crammed with heaven, every bush ablaze with glory, but only those who see it take off their shoes. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.